It's just not possible to gain that much in value that quickly with declining revenue. And that's when I really had the epiphany that investing was not about stocks and bonds. Investing is about innovation. The belief is if there's a new piece of information, that it will be instantly incorporated into the price of the stock or the bond or whatever. But that's not how people change their minds. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Alex Gurevich is founder and CIO of Honte Advisors, a global macro hedge fund based in San Francisco. Alex was hailed as JP Morgan's star trader in 2003, where he served as managing director of global macro trading. And following remarkable outperformance in 2020, Honte's net return was ranked second in the world by Barclays. Alex's latest book, The Trades of March 2020, was a Wall Street Journal bestseller, chronicling the collapse of financial markets during the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Alex explains how his fund not only survived, but thrived during this period, offering unparalleled insight into the command centre of a macro hedge fund as stock markets plunged 35%. Alex finishes by offering his outlook for a recession, US equities, and themes to watch in 2022. Enjoy. Welcome, Alex. It's great to have you on the show. So how are you? Good. Thank you, Adam. I'm looking forward to it. Good. Uh, Whereabouts are you speaking to us from? I'm speaking from my home office in Tiburon, California, which is near San Francisco in the Bay Area. Quite a bit of time difference for you, I assume. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm speaking to you at at sort of quarter to five, so end of the working day here in London. So... uh, I want to start, as we do with all of our interviews, with a question that won't necessarily flow chronologically, but it will give listeners an early indication of of one of the focuses of today's interview. Uh, And that is to start with your book, The Trades of March 2020. Uh, That chronicles your trading activity, amongst other things, as the COVID outbreak unfolds. Uh, Particularly in terms of of trading behavior and psychology, can you see any parallels, I wonder, between what happened then and the market sentiment and, and perhaps panic surrounding Russia's invasion of Ukraine at the end of February? I think, if anything, drawing parallel between those two events and other big crises that I've traded through, which would include global financial crisis on September 11th and even original Russian debt crisis on 98, when I look at those things, I see more differences and similarities. It more teaches me how... Crisis never happens on schedule, and crisis is always different. Every crisis is always different. The texture of market reaction, the texture of uh, interaction of asset classes, everything is always different. There are some, of course, overarching guiding principles that you can use to navigate crisis, and I try to. That's what I try to focus on in my book: how you can guide yourself, even not knowing what's going to happen in the future, what kind of crisis it will be, how it will resolve, how to guide yourself through those situations. Having said that, this is a very different type of event. Uh, for example, pandemic started as a deflationary shock, which led to inflationary policy response. And this crisis is an inflationary shock, which is leading to deflationary policy response. Mm. So almost everything is kind of almost the opposite. For example, pandemic resulted in an incredibly sharp sell-off in stocks with very sharp reversal. While right now we're experiencing something much more like a protracted bear market, just to show one distinction. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'd like to get into a few more of those distinctions uh, later on in the in the episode. But let's circle back, I suppose, and introduce you to any listeners that aren't familiar with your work. Uh, and let's start back in your college days. I, I read that you earned a PhD in mathematics from the University of Chicago. Um, to what extent do you think you've been able to apply that learning within your, your current macro trading strategy? In terms of actual math, very little. There is very little of actual math that I studied that ever cropped up in my Wall Street career. In terms of kind of a frame of thinking, probably a lot. I think the reason that sometimes they hired math PhDs on Wall Street is not just because of the math research they can do, but, but because of like consistent analytic thinking you can do, like you can think through formal logic. What I think math taught me to do is to be faithful to my assumptions. If I made certain assumptions and there is logic leads from those assumptions to some implications, I either have to accept those implications or reassess my assumptions. I cannot just skim over like, well, A implies B and A is there, but B maybe is not there. That does not work like that. Either I was wrong to begin with, or I have to accept the implication is there. It sounds very simple, but actually I found that trips up a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Completely see your point. Um, and I think after you left uh, university, you, you quite quickly start trading. I think, but I think it was at Bankers Trust originally where you're trading fixed income derivatives. Um, and I just I, I found it interesting. I suppose that maybe a lot of people, and the, and this could be a, an erroneous assumption, but a lot of people that have a mathematics background might start by, uh, you know, doing kind of more quantitative research. I suppose, but you didn't do that. You went almost straight into trading. It seems. Why do you think that was? Well, I was very adamant about the fact that I had no interest in doing quantitative research on Wall Street. From the very beginning, when I was ever this discussion arose, and it did arose at some point in the mergers with Deutsche Bank, I immediately said, if I wanted to do math, I would stay in academia. Mm. I can do much better math while being in university. Yes, you're probably paid incrementally less, but you also regain it in lifestyle. The reason I wanted to be on Wall Street is because I was interested not just in analysis, but also in strategy. I wanted to trade. I wanted to have a portfolio. I wanted to have make decisions, to make decisions. And I did not want a computer to make decisions for me. I'm interested in the process of making decisions using my brain. Mm, fascinating. There is nothing wrong with the other approach. And in fact, many people were wildly successful. Actually, a lot of my uh, people I went to the University of Chicago with are very successful people in the quantitative research world, some well-known names that I know very well personally. And uh, it's not like what I did was better than what they did. It just was my preference. I really was interested in uh, strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, if we continue to move through your career then, I think you moved to, to Chase, as it was then known, in, in 2000, trading basis swaps, I think. Uh, Chase then merges with JP Morgan, as we know. Uh, and by this point, you're, you're starting to run that basis swap franchise uh, before you go on to actually launch their agency asset swap franchise. Uh, so firstly, why, why leave um, Bankers Trust in the first place? Which I believe by that point, I think you just mentioned there, it had actually been uh, acquired by, by Deutsche Bank. What, what was the reason for, for leaving? Largely, it had to do with just specific job I had because I started on a basis swap book as a junior trader on basis and municipal swap books and... Uh, bankers trust and I really love that market but when the merger happened I almost moved to the trading options 
which was a really good experience. I traded bond options and even had got some experience trading exotic options, mortgage agency, composite options. So it was a very good wide experience, but I found this market honestly mind-numbingly boring <laughs> because it was all about like just evaluating, looking at different sets of listed and over-the-counter options and looking how different prices of them and trying to delta hedge them. There was no really real sense of risk-taking. Risk it was all about just hedging clients deal and trying to make small profits. And I also, uh, what is interesting, I started to complain even back then. I want to get my options for free. I don't want to pay premium for my options. That's boring. Mm. I want to look to broader class of assets and look how they create free options. Options which I don't pay premium for or even options that pay me premium. Mm. Uh, kind of routine trading and saying, oh, this, over the, this listed option is half a tick too cheap, so I'll buy it and this over-the-counter options, half a tick too expensive, so I'll sell it. That's just really, really boring to me, which is, again, not to knock on people who love doing that. It, it, fortunately, like in real life, in the markets, there are also the variety of preferences and uh, variety of preferences and kind of personalities and styles. So I, I learned some useful stuff there, but I was just looking for a more interesting job and Chase offered me to run the book that I traded before at Bankers Trust as a junior trader that offered me a senior position, which was kind of my dream at that moment. Yeah, of course. Um, and if we go a few years ahead, I think by 2003, you're mentioned in a, in a Wall Street Journal article uh, as JP Morgan's star trader, uh, in inverted commas, I think that was the, the phrase that they use within the piece. So can you just talk to us about the trades you were making around that time that afforded you that renown? Why, why did they highlight you in such a way? I think it was our group. We had this new proprietary group formed. So uh, when the JP Morgan and Chase merged, uh, for so as you mentioned, I was on the client side, fixed income derivatives. But then they formed this new big division called Global Currencies and Commodities Group. And they wanted to start some proprietary risk taking from that. And they brought me in, uh, offered me to go there and run a, a macro portfolio there because by that time I was more interested in macro trading too. And um, so we started to make, 2003 was an interest, 2000, I did really well in 2002, uh, because basically I invented risk parity at that time. Mm. And I did my internal presentation and JP Morgan on risk parity, which looked, I didn't call it risk parity, I have no idea what other people were doing risk parity. They were already doing it, I was just complete. Uh, but I had my own independent way of thinking, which is really very similar to how people think now of risk parity. So I realized that I need to be long stocks and long bonds in 2002, which was the best time to do that. In 2003, I started to get into big currency trades, which some of them went successfully early in the year. And that's why we got the leaks and publicity. It was kind of like a turning on the dollar when dollars started to get weaker, when gold started to rally, when certain... Um, Currency dislocation started to rectify after the September 11th slump. So that was the time of uh, then currency and commodities groups started to do very well. Yeah, great. Um, and you mentioned publicity there. I imagine you were afforded a lot of publicity off the back of that article. I imagine that was the first time you were afforded such renown and, and almost celebrity within the industry. How, how did you deal with that? Were you comfortable with that? Or actually, did you, did you not like it too much? Honestly, I did not like it too much because the article was mostly viewed as a leak. Right. It was not advertorial at all, right? There was nobody, nothing bad said about this article. It was not all accurate either. It was just kind of 
approximation of, it was like speculation of what people are getting paid, which really had nothing to do with reality. And also you have no idea what people are going to get paid at the end of the year anyway. But mm. uh, some of the aspects of this article were probably not precise. And was I uh, started to get, I think, a little more paranoid about leaks mm. in my life and being like having anybody know anything about me or about our business. Yeah. Uh, not on a negative way, but I think at that point, I was not thinking that I really needed any publicity. Paradoxically, later on, when I when I raise when I went to have my own businesses, raise capital, some publicity is actually a good thing for that. But I never sought publicity during those times. Yeah, of course. And I want to get on to the current business in a second. So I guess to finish off your kind of early career before we move on to Honte, I, I think you leave JP Morgan in two thousand and seven. Uh, you launch Honte in two thousand fifteen. So there's, uh, and then you start, I think, taking outside money at your current place uh, in 2016, just to give everyone the full timeline. So between 2007, 2015, can you give us a, an insight into what, what, were you, what you were doing during that period? Yes, I left JP Morgan. I started briefly another hedge fund called Cloudview Capital, which did not work out for a variety of reasons I talk about in my first book. Mm. So in my first book, uh, uh, the next perfect trade, I discuss some of the things that happened in 2007 when I launched Cloudview Capital. So that didn't work out and I very soon closed it down and moved to managing my own money, starting with 2008. So basically between 2008 and 2015, I was managing my own money as a family office and I've done quite well doing this and my portfolio kept growing and I started to feel that the way I'm running my money, the way I'm running my strategy, I can very easily have outside investors who will have the same investment experience as I have on my own. Yeah, of course. Well, that brings me nicely, I think, onto my next question, which is, and it's one that we ask most founders that join us on, on the show, whether there, I suppose, was a eureka moment um, that incited the creation of Honte as a business. Is that true? Is there one moment that you can pinpoint that kind of made you think, yes, this business is worthy of creation or was it more of a gradual process? I think it's more of a confluence of uh, three separate things that happened. One of them, what I mentioned, that I got comfortable enough running my family office and realizing that I have a steady performance track and uh, it's scalable to bring more people in. So that was one aspect of it. Mm. Second aspect of it is when I published my first book, I realized that I have a very well articulated strategy that I can now speak to it. I have like it's point by point, rigorous way of how am I doing it. It's explainable. It's, it's, a, it's not some kind of voodoo, not just trading from the gut. I have a very specific strategy that seems to work. And by that time, it worked for already a decent amount of time. Mm. And the third, the third one is just somewhat circumstantial is that I needed um, someone to start the firm with. And I, I had just a logistic opportunity to have people to work with to start the firm. Because I am more of a trader than a trading manager or business manager. I'm mostly interested in being either in front of my computer or just like walking around and thinking about markets. Uh, the business aspects of this is not what is particularly attractive to me. Yeah, of course. Okay, so uh, where does the name come from? What, what does Honte mean? So Honte is a Japanese strategic term. It comes from the game Go, which I played since I was in high school and still continue to play. Mm. Uh, honte means true move, but uh, Hong 
means truth, and Teis means either hand or move in Japanese. Now, in this context, what it means is a move which is not flashy, not something which is achieves immediate victory, something which is careful and long planned and kind of a little maybe even slow and cautious, but something that yields the best long-term results. Mm. So I felt it would be an appropriate name for a hedge fund. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think on your website, you describe uh, Honte as an investment manager specializing in long horizon, discretionary, global macro trading. So obviously, there's a few adjectives there. Perhaps you can just help us make sense of, of that list of adjectives. Well, the easiest one is discretionary. Mm. Because uh, discretionary, that means uh, that it's human beings making decisions, not computers. Yeah. Um, Computers could still aid you. You can have any kind of models or charts or statistics or whatever else you run through on computers. But in the end, it's human, which is me, who makes the decision. We buy this, so we sell that. Um, of course, you can just say what well, is global macro, first of all, for people who are living in a different universe. I don't know if there's a very good definition of global macro because some people just say that global macro means that you can do anything you want. To. <laughs> I think usually focus of global macro funds is directional bets. Mm-hmm. on any big asset classes around the world, such as uh, interest rates, currencies, stocks, and commodities. I think the specifics of macro that you do less relative value. You don't do like, I sell this versus buy this. I am like going to do this calendar spread between this futures contract in the fall versus futures contract in the spring. You could do those things, but you're more oriented towards, I think oil prices will go up. I think gold prices will go down or the opposite, right? Yeah. That's how you're thinking. And that's kind of example of macro thinking. You do less bottom-up analysis. You typically don't do... It's easier to describe macro in terms of what you don't do. Yeah. Like yeah. you don't spend a lot of time on individual stocks and credits and things like this. You basically look at what is going around the world and what major directional moves can happen there. That's global macro. And I guess it leaves us with a long horizon. Mm which just means that um, I found that uh, it's kind of too easier to see the forest behind the trees, mm-hmm. that there are, there are different ways of trading. There are ways of trading when you do a lot of trades and have like 52% chance of being right on any of them. And if you do them frequently enough, you accumulate your gains like a casino. Or you can select trades which have about 80% chance of being right, but they have two to five years to play out. And that uh, suits my trading personality better. I find that there is a certain what I call horizon of maximum clarity, horizon of two to five years when things happen most inevitably. When you go too far in time, you cannot really project because too many things will interfere. And if you're too close, it's too much noise. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes perfect sense. And I want to get back to time horizon, actually. But before we do... We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. We've got a lot of stock market investors uh, listening in. Um, Honte, as far as I understand it, doesn't focus on on stocks. I think you you primarily deal in derivatives, swaps, currencies, uh, and things of the like. So uh, I read, 
I believe it was in your book, um, which we're going to get onto in a second. Uh, you, you had a nice iceberg analogy um, to do with all the different asset classes, essentially saying that there was a more, I suppose, powerful financial flows, i.e. the derivatives, the swaps, the currencies, and that was under the surface, whereas the tip of the iceberg was, in fact, stocks. What was happening beneath the water, so in that more kind of powerful, more significant area of the market during the month of March? Well, what everything always comes down to in some ways is liquidity. So the relative value of asset classes comes down to which asset class is abundant and which asset class is scarce. If you think of cash as an asset class, when cash is abundant, then all assets start going up in terms of cash. Yeah. When cash is scarce, all asset classes go down. What I always made a point of, I observed it many years ago, and it, I think helped me to navigate 2020. Stock markets go down in recessions, not because recession somehow depresses stock valuations. There is no particular reason for stocks to trade lower during a recession. If you really think through, uh, the specific recessions can hit specific sections of stock market. Like, for example, global financial crisis hit banks and uh, pandemic hit hotels. Mm. That's a reality. However, broad stock market, there is no particular reason why Google had to go down during the global financial crisis. They have no debt. There was nothing that, you know, over the long run was hurting them from global financial crisis. However, all stocks went down in global financial crisis. And the original reaction, very short-term reaction on pandemic, almost all stocks went down in pandemic too, even those that would eventually have a stellar rise afterwards, benefiting from the dynamics of the pandemics. So what actually happens? What happens is that cash gets scarce. So the interest rate markets the bond market is actually the market for cash. Mm. I think that was the most fundamental of all markets. That's why I think U.S. interest rate markets at the heart of everything. Interest rates is a price of cash. Interest rates go up, hard to borrow cash. Interest rates go down, easy to borrow cash. Fed does quantitative tightening, less cash around. Fed does quantitative easing, there is more cash around. When there is a lot of cash around, it eventually finds a place. Mm. So the relative supplies of cash and various currencies drive currency, well, part of the driver of currency markets. So those are the currents that go underneath. What's going on with money? And then also what's going on with commodities that we need to live the lives. It does not matter what's happening in the cover. How to say what's happening in the stock market is not going to let us pump gas into the car. Mm. So those are the big underlying processes that go on. What happened in pandemic first in March at the first time in the original shutdown, there was a huge scarcity of cash. Liquidity got very tight and there was this dollar rally. There was a huge run to liquidity and everything in terms of cash fell. But that was just a very short process because there was so much cash added into the system by uh, both uh, treasuries and central banks that uh, suddenly cash became abundant and in excess. So stock markets didn't have to behave the way they were they did in the past recessions because there was no cash shortage. In fact, there was an incredible cash excess. Mm. Yeah, I see what you mean. And um, that really nicely gives us context to then discuss what happened uh, in March 2020 a little bit further. But I guess before we do, why, why do you think you spotted the disruption and the, the volatility being caused at the heart or the core of the global financial system, as I think you put it in your book, when so many others actually missed that disruption? 
Well, I don't know if I can even say that people miss the disruption. I think people focus on different things, mm -hmm. right? Everybody focuses on what they trade and what they live, right? People just trade stocks, they see stock markets going down, right? Mm -hmm. If they, um, and if they've always looked at stock market, for example, and thought, well, this is how stock market behave in recessions, then they, they might've thought like, okay, well, stock market went down and it should go down further because the recession is very deep. And when the stock market bounced, some people didn't believe in that bounce because they felt like, oh, it has to go further down. There's always a double dip. Mm. There are also, or like things are not going to reopen, economy is still going to be closed. And hence, stock market has to go down. Mm. While going back to being a mathematician, I was like, no, there is no irrefutable logic that says economic slowdown leads to lower stock prices. That is just observation from the past. Mm. So it's not that people, I think people saw the disruptions, but they saw, I think one of the example advantages of being a global macro person, you kind of look at the world as a whole. And I, I think many people try to do that as well. I think global macro traders just have the specific training of looking at the world as a whole. Yeah, really interesting that that kind of holistic look at everything going on rather than one specific asset class afforded you maybe. Not insight that people didn't have, but certainly a layer of insight that other people weren't able to get to potentially, or at least the majority weren't. It certainly seems that was the case. Um, and if we dig into kind of the, your trading activity around that period, I read uh, again in your book that during the time yourself and the team were, were trading almost around the clock. So how do, how do you look back at that period in general? Is it a blur or can you remember events vividly? I remember some moments vividly. There is a little bit of a blur creating, of course. What is interesting as I was writing the books, I have generally very good recall of price action. Mm. But as I was writing the book, I was remembering certain things in certain ways and not all the things I was remembering were precise. And mm. it always like, a, I don't know, like a reality check when you realize that your memory is not as perfect as you think. Fortunately, because I had the transcripts, I could reconstruct everything blow by blow and trade minute by minute. And if you asked me questions about some of them, maybe I would have answered them incorrectly in terms of like, I think this happened before that, or I think we did this on that day, but I would not be precise about that. There is definitely a bit of a blur and a bit of a haze. And because it was a combination of, this is what I try to capture in my book. It was not just about financial markets. It's a combination of this weirdness in your personal life when you're suddenly shut down and like you can't even first few weeks, I wasn't even allowed to go for a hike. So at the same time, the weather was kind of not so great yet in March here. It started to get nicer. So you basically kind of cooped up at home. Mm. Uh, you cannot go anywhere. Uh, you're worried like your kids are home from school. Uh, you're trying to figure out homeschooling. At the same time, you're like worried about if you, I don't know, breathe, step outside and breathe lung full of air if you're going to get COVID because we don't know yet how COVID spreads. So every, everything is panic, like even going to groceries is like going into battle zone. Hmm. So you have all of things happening to them and you're still trying to make decisions and manage a portfolio. It was definitely somewhat weird and overwhelming. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, and you, you mentioned there that you were able to look back at your trade logs and, and kind of conversations, particularly from your Slack channel that were printed verbatim within your book. And I just wondered, you know, why you decided to do that. I mean, a lot of um, kind of trading accounts or diaries don't offer the same transparency. So, so what incited you to make that decision? Well, I guess my goal was to give the account uh, with as little bias as possible. 
And I realized from that whenever anyone tells a story of their trading, of their life, or anything, a story of a dinner they went to the previous night, they give a very biased color of account. Mm. Our memory plays deep with us. Our biases basically paint the past in the way our brain wants to. And some of the memories might be even entirely false. So if you try to relate things, they will always, the readers will always see it through your eyes. And even in this book, to an extent, people see it through my eyes because the commentary is mine. But at least what I wanted to provide readers with is complete reality check to see like, well, am I really doing what I'm saying I'm doing? They don't even have to read through all the Slack records, mm. but they can double check. If I say here, I'm getting scared and I'm starting to turn around and reduce my positions. Um, was I actually doing this? Mm. Right. Or I could say here, I decided it's time to take a stand. I sense the bottom was coming. I'm buying. I'm just giving examples, right? Mm. Was I really doing it that day? And only the full transcript can give the readers confidence of that honesty. As I said, I'm not expecting readers to dive through every line of the trade transcript, but they can double check whatever they want to if they have a doubt at any point. And I think by publishing everything, I keep myself honest and not allowing myself to skew the story in any way. And mind you, I'm telling the story of the month when I did well overall. Mm -hmm. It's a period of my time which was successful. So I cherry pick the period when I did well. I'm not mm. writing about my worst year ever, right? <laughs> so yeah. I cherry pick the time when I did well, but even within that time, there was a lot of trading mistakes, a lot of confusion, a lot of fear, a lot of uh, just dealing with uncertainty and unusual circumstances. So in this sense, I decided, well, I'm already kind of cutting off the period where I can boast about, but at the same time, I have to be humble about showing uh, the readers how not easy it is even when times are good. Yeah, absolutely. And that certainly comes across in the book. It definitely offers that balance that maybe wouldn't have been there otherwise, given that, as you say, you did cherry pick the period. But, you, you know, you can't hide from the fact, and nor would you want to, I suppose, that it was a time in which the fund did incredibly well. I think you were ranked uh, second for your net return by Barclays in 2020. So if you could sort of pinpoint one or even a couple of things, what do you think was fundamental to that success during that period? Was there a particular you know, hypothesis or theme that you had strong conviction in? What would you say? Well, I think there was maybe like I would break it into three components. Mm. First of all, that's my poker night analogy. If you're in the middle of a poker night winning, you're more likely to continue winning because it's easier to make good decisions. So I had a good year in 2019 and I was coming in 2020 strong. My positions that I had were actually benefiting from COVID. Like if I don't touch them, they're making money, right? I, at least in the first quarter of 2020. Mm. So I had this advantage of kind of having a good head start that I could build up. So that's the first component. The second component that I had a good, created a framework during uh, the month of March, that framework of those two basic certain facts, that pandemic will pass or be resolved one way or another eventually. And the second fact that the policymakers will just keep adding liquidity till the liquidity will become excessive. And then when I, that allowed me to formulate long horizon trading strategy of accumulating assets that will eventually benefit from the rise in liquidity. And I think the third time, the third thing that I was able to run that positions, uh, because once I formulated this thesis, I was able to run the positions through 2020. Actually, I think, I'm not sure, but I think at least half of the majority 
majority of my profits came not in the first quarter of 2020, but actually after March 2020, as the market started to recover and things normalize. Mm. So basically, I was going in, I was going in strong into this. I think I had strong thesis during the events as the events unfolded, and I was able to run the positions. So it's a combination of those three things in 2020. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned your kind of long horizon there. That's that's part of the the firm's philosophy, I suppose. But it, it did strike me that during a time of such turbulence, of such kind of high volatility, huge price swings, etc. Was it difficult to, I guess, maintain that long-term time horizon? Uh, were you having to be more active in your uh, trading strategy than you typically would have been? Well, I think there is no conflict between being more active and maintaining a long-term horizon. Maintaining long-term horizon is difficult, but in a different way, which I will get to in a second. Being more active, it just means that the market keeps giving you opportunities. For example, if you bought something and you have a like say let's think as a stock investor you bought a stock at 50 dollars and your price target is 100 dollars and you think it's gonna get there in two years then something happened and it gets there in one day then you can take profits next day and buy something else so that makes you active but you still it doesn't change your strategy so what happens in markets which are extremely volatile, that various price targets are reached much faster than you could have imagined and you keep repositioning, but always with the thought of what are the trades which are likely to work out in the long run? Mm. Never with the thought of I'm going to buy it right now because I think market will rebound in the afternoon. Yeah. But even with the thought of what is the long horizon value in my portfolio, what, where I should take profits, where I should stop out, where I should add, um, when markets are so volatile, the trading becomes very active. So that's the first aspect of this. The difficulty lies honestly just withholding the positions from the perspective of portfolio management because um, by the nature, like there are types of traders who just say like, I'm going to buy this set of stocks and I'm going to go to sleep for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if they go down 99% one of them, I'm just holding it till it goes up million percent from there. I mean. That's a valid approach too. Mm. Uh, when you trade macro, when you, you by nature use leverage because interest rate trades, the notions on those trades, for example, are nothing like the notions of stock trades. You could mm. have a small portfolio running like 100 to 1 leverage on some of those trades, theoretically. The exposures that could be very small, for example, if you're doing a very short-term interest rate trade, maybe you're betting like on an interest rate setting just for one month and mm. you could run million dollars and you can bet on a interest rate on a billion dollars for one month because that's going to be a pretty small swing but when things start swinging a lot when some really unusual events happen you could have big exposures the result is that you can have drawdowns margin calls kind of worries about men your correlation breakdowns in your portfolio that make you worried about overall health of the portfolio and there's also structural problems happening in crisis when for example, if you have certain assets on your balance sheet and all of a sudden the banks will start funding your balance sheet, that's a worry, right? Like you depend on having funding for your balance sheet if you borrow money to buy assets. Mm. So once all of these things get destabilized, you face some practical risks, which have nothing to do with whether you believe in the validity of your positions in the long run. Yeah, I completely see what you mean. Um, that's a really interesting distinction between sort of 
conviction, I suppose, and just the positioning along the way to reaching that end conviction. And I, uh, I mean, you kind of mentioned it there, I think, as one of your components of, of why you did well and, and the fund outperformed in 2020. And um, was your positioning actually before this period, so within 2019, where you were positioned well for rate cuts, um, when of course most of the market weren't, uh, I think that's fair to say. What what did you see then that others missed in in, in reflection? Well, I formed a very strong view on interest rates at the beginning of 2018, when there was this big sell-off on the dollar and bonds simultaneously and a little bit of volatility in the stock market. But uh, the assumption was still that um, rates will continue to rise. I wrote a post, I think, at that time. I think it was in my investment letter, which I delineated 16 signs of end cycle pattern. <laughs> yep. there, was, there was a whole bunch of things that I've observed over the previous interest rate cycles, mostly tr those which I traded myself, though I could go back and check some of the more previous ones on the charts too. But of course, the most vivid pattern recognition comes from the times when you actually traded the cycle around 2001, so 2000 rolling into the easing of 2001 and 2006 and 2007. And 2018 incredibly well fit into that pattern of rolling over markets and a lot of those things are counterintuitive. For example, people think of tight job market as a sign that interest rates will rise, while historically tight job market is a sign of interest rates will fall. Mm. It's, it's very counterintuitive, but look at the charts, look at actual historical patterns. When job market gets very tight, that's very bullish for bonds. Because that means that we're at the end of the cycle, the growth is about to stop. When the job market is tight, it's not possible for the economy to grow any further. And that's usually the time when um, things are beginning to roll over. So instead of predicting high inflation, typically tight job markets predicts going forward low inflation. Mm. It's very hard for people to believe it. But again, I think being mathematician helps with that because you don't have to be beholden in math. You're not beholden to common sense. Common sense is actually a huge enemy for a mathematician because a lot of mathematical facts do not work out according to your life intuition. Mathematicians have an intuition. There is such a thing as mathematical intuition, but it's very different from human life intuition. Mm. But things that you learn from life do not help you to do math <laughs> at all. It's paradoxical, but like nothing of common sense that we learn helps you to do math. Actually, it can only harm you. The more you internalize the realities of actual physical universe, the harder it is to do math. So something like that happens in financial world as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's fascinating. It almost lends you a, a layer or degree of objectivity that's harder for non-mathematicians to reach, perhaps. Um, that, that's, that's really, really fascinating and gives us a real insight into your mindset. Um, and you mentioned the business cycle there. Um, I'm, I'm keen to, I suppose, finish the conversation by, by looking ahead um, to get your thoughts on kind of current markets and where they might be headed. Um, you mentioned your positioning in, in 2018, moving into 2019, recognizing that you were kind of at the end of the business cycle towards the end, uh, and that was quickly approaching. Where are we now in the cycle, do you think? I think we're in a very similar place, except mm. that it's more clear that we're at the end of the business cycle and the inflation trajectory is less clear because it's so high right now. Mm. Uh, I feel strongly about the fact that we're going into global recession. 
Mm-hmm. I don't think it's, much, it's almost like impossible not to be in a global recession right now. And in fact, technically, all the big economies are already in recession. Yeah. I feel that inflation is the fact that it's something that is not happening. It's something that has happened. But the worry right now should be about deflation, not about inflation. Mm, that's really interesting. Uh, I feel like it's one of those things. I make an analogy in my book of walking on a beach. And uh, I think many people who live in coastal areas know this. You go like through a very narrow strip of land, land like narrow strip mm. of sand, and the waves can coming in and out. And you want to run off to the next cove, run to the mm. next cove. So if you start running when the water is low and there is space, the wave will get over you. What you need to do, you need to start running while the wave is still high and the water is about to start coming out. You start running as the water comes out and then it gives you more time before it comes in again. However, the, in human mind, when the water is high, is to be afraid of it because it feels like, oh, the water is high. I'm not going to go there. Mm, yeah. But same thing I think happening in markets right now. In, people, they see inflation being high. It is high now, so they feel like that is the reality that we should worry about. But the ebb is already starting. And all the forces, all the forces of gravity, you might not visually see yet the water receding, but you know which way the gravity works. Yeah. And all the forces of economic gravity are slowing down economy and slowing down the recession. So I have to be biased towards the fact that the water will come up, the water will drain out. So I want to be ready to start running. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, such a fascinating sort of analogy. I've not actually heard that one before. So if your outlook, I suppose, is that there will be deflation rather than inflation, how are you positioning Honte's investments in the portfolio at the moment to capitalize on that theme? Well, the best way to position is uh, on that view, if my view is correct, is to make various bets which capital, like interest rates, bets on structures which capitalize on interest rates going to zero. Like my position is not that they will not tighten as much as projected. I actually don't know how many tightenings will be thrown in. They might throw in a few. My core view is that in two years, rates are zero. Just as in 2018, my view was that rates would be zero two years from there. COVID accelerated it, but they were heading there anyway already. So I'm on a similar boat right now. I think that rates are going to zero in the next couple of years. And I think you can have bets that will make money on that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mentioned at the start, I think that uh, we've got a lot of stock market investors listening in. So they'll be keen to know kind of what the the macro environment, I suppose, means for uh, US stocks and the S&P 500, namely... Uh, I listened to a recent interview you did with David Rosenberg, uh, an alumni of the Opto Sessions podcast. He was on a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think it was him that predicted that the S&P 500 would fall at least a further 30% before the end of the year. Do Honte have a particular sort of outlook for US equities at the moment? Where do you think they're headed for, for the rest of this year? Okay, so I have to confess to two things. I have been very outspoken equity bear over the last few months, but I have not been really strongly capitalizing on this because generally I don't like being short stocks. It's not part of my strategy. The reason why I don't like being short stocks is because over the long run, stocks always go up and I don't like fighting against secular trends. Yeah. So this, uh, this is a hard environment in the sense that usually I capitalize instead of being short stocks, I'm long bonds, but long bonds has been a very difficult trade over the last two years. So this year, you would have done better by just directly shorting the stocks, which would be somewhat aligned with my view. Uh, to me, being short just means not being long, mm. that I'm staying out of stock market for the moment. And uh, I 
think that stock market has further, obviously, it's much more exciting to be negative on stock market a couple of months ago when it was much higher. I believe that location matters mm -hmm. because even though momentum and trend mean something, but when you buy stock market 15% lower, then it means that 10 years from now, you are 15% richer than you would have been if you bought it 15% higher, right? Mm -hmm. That's just that simple, right? Mm -hmm. It's better to buy lower than to sell high. So of course, it's harder to sell and easier to buy right now. Having said that, over years, I've been very outspoken about this indicator. This is an indicator that I introduced in my first book in 2015 when I published it, and it's worked magically since, and it's continuing to work like magic. And I continue using it as a forward uh, indicator, and it, it continues to play out in a way which is just, just really hard to imagine how precise it is. Uh, if you want to know what the stocks will do, look at the 10-year yield, and look whether it's higher or lower than it was two years ago. And so. Today, the yield on a 10-year note is higher than it was two years ago, and that's what made me bearish on the stock market. And that thing turned around at the end of 2021. Until then, yield was actually lower than it was two years prior, and somewhere this winter, that thing flipped, mm. and stock market started to perform much worse. And I think we're given like for a while, we will be in a situation when a 10-year yield is higher than it was two years ago. And until that thing is switches, I'm probably not going to be very bullish on stock market, no matter what else happens. Yeah, I really found that if you use this indicator and just ignore everything else, it does really well. Yeah, fantastic. Think about March 2020. The yield on the two-year notes fell dramatically compared to March 2018. What did you have to do? Buy stocks. <laughs> yeah. And, and you remember what happened in 2018? The yield was much higher than it was in 2016. And what did you have to do? Sell stocks. <laughs> So simple. Why? Why aren't? Why is not everyone else using this? Uh, this indicator. Um, no, I don't know. I keep publishing this chart every year and like showing the fit, and people are just okay, right? And um, I'm, like, I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not worried about sharing it because it's not like people will edge me out of stock market or bond market. They're so deep, right? Yeah. 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 But I'm just saying for myself. I'm probably not gonna get bullish on stock market till interest rates fall dramatically yeah no i mean it makes complete sense and um useful uh, that you mentioned that was in your first book um we'll we'll include links to both of those books within the episode description uh, and in our article and uh, on the october website as well uh, just so people can get their hands on further detail on all of those sorts of insights um and uh, as usual, like with any guest, we like to finish on our quick fire question round. So I think it's a good opportunity to do that, given we're just coming up to the end of our session. Um, this is a more generic list of questions, so not particularly tailored to you, but just a lighthearted way to end the episode. And feel free to answer in as little as one sentence or even one word if you like. The first question, and we've touched on a few of these points today, but what is the most frequent mistake do you think made by investors? I think the most frequent mistakes is uh, people don't match their trading strategy with their thesis. Yeah, yeah. That is, they have a they have a thesis that how they why they're doing something, but they're not doing something that the thesis actually implies. Yeah, completely see what you mean. So, question two: Where do you go for economic or investment insights? Do you read any specific publishers, for example? Yes, I read some research. Some of it paid, customized research. Some of it just general research provided by uh, banks and other coverage. 
And I just kind of tried to put it all together in my head. Yeah. Just a general kind of picture of what's going on in the world from multiple inputs. Great. Question three then, and this can be a tricky one, but is there a particular moment within your career to date that stands out? If you, if you could just pick just one, what would it be? Probably September 11th. Mm. Yeah, we've we've it's hard to be yeah to yeah, and and one that we've actually had before. Um, people trading around that time. Um, obviously, you know, one one that's going to live long in the memory. Um, my penultimate question then is: if you could go back in time, is there a top tip that you would give your younger self? A bit of advice that you would give to to a younger Alex? I think I was once asked asked this question before, and my answer was that I would just tell my younger self that I'll still be here. 30 years later <laughs> and it is important in a sense that you as a young person it's hard to make long-term plans mm. because you think who cares what i don't even know what i'm gonna want when i'm 50 years old but you know what you're gonna pretty much want the same things when you're 50 years old and it's important to start building them for yourself mm. yeah absolutely and uh, my final question then and this is sort of the opto question i suppose we aim to speak to fund managers, uh, business owners, individual investors even, outperforming benchmark returns, and at least just trying to do something a bit different to the rest of the market. So we always ask them, what is an investor's best source of alpha, do you think, if you had to narrow it down to one thing? Well, I think uh, from a kind of financial and mathematical perspective, there are many different sources of alpha. Mm. I think as a manager, you should ask yourself, when you search for alpha, you should ask yourself, what is that one thing that I do better than anybody else in the world? Yeah. And they make it at your edge. So the true alpha, there is not that much alpha in the markets. And alpha usually comes from people who are exceptionally good at one specific thing or, or a set of specific things. Like if you're very good at market timing, that's your source of alpha, but you better be the best in the world at that. Mm. Yeah. Completely agree. And a fantastic insight, I think, to end on. Uh, So that just leaves me to say thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Alex. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Great conversation. Great questions. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time. CoFruition.